Salam salam, ishtanin singaye. This is Weiss. Hello, I'm uh, Daoud. And honestly, I, I don't know about you, but I can never get comfortable saying ishtanin singaye. No, no, okay. I can get comfortable saying singe, right? But ishtanin, I can't. I don't know what it is. I didn't even know that there was more to it. In, like there was more in the Hirati like accent than just yeah. an accent. I didn't know they had different words. Oh, ne- I mean, for sure, I butchered it. I, there is no way I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just, I felt comfortable saying it. But it's one of those things of I'm gonna only feel comfortable because I don't remember the last time I heard an actual Hirati person say it. Um, no, like I, I have friends that are Hirati that like have said it, but like they'll say it like just like to mess with me. You know, and I get confused. I'm like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Or um, they'll, yeah. Or so they'll say like y- blanket or something differently or pillow. I don't know yeah. how you say it, but it throws me off. I know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. By the way, you know, I just realized something. What's I don't that? think you, I don't think you and I have ever recorded a podcast together. No, we've done them like separate of each other. Yeah. But we've never done one together. No, hmm. this is, this is nice, man. Yeah, it is, man. It's a uh, TS men. You know, me and you, and then um, we have Reza hosting the actual content of the podcast. We're doing the intro. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's probably part of the reason why we never co-hosted an actual podcast together. We try to we try to keep things not too bro-y, so <laughs> yeah. I don't think you and I will ever record ever again. Yeah, if they ever need a conversation about, like, the WWE in the 90s, I think you and I can handle it. Oh, my God. Have you been, have you been going on YouTube and just nostalgia watching? I mean, I have a WWE Network subscription, so <laughs> I do that. that was, the, I do that regularly. That, that was an Im, that was an embarrassing admission, and I'm happy I <laughs> I got that I, out of you. I am not embarrassed by that. I signed up when they first created that thing like five years ago. I've been a subscriber for five years. All right, I'm gonna move on now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I I, I want to address the elephant in the room here. I've realized, and we've all realized that it has it has been a minute since we've uploaded an episode uh, yeah just a little you know hey yeah. but look in our defense all right the other afghan podcaster we've uploaded before him right like when was the last time you've seen an update from the apartment with uh, asif and baluch or ali and baluch whatever they want to call yeah, themselves the, the ali and baluch show yeah the ali and baluch <laughs> um, i don't know and you know what I'm not going to tell him that we're we're talking about him here. I want to I want him to text me just to acknowledge whether or not he's actually listening to these. Yeah, he's probably not. It's, but it's, um, it's Asif and Ali, that's what it's called by the way. <laughs> we didn't need to correct that. Yeah. Um so yeah, so it's been a while and admittedly we're we slacked on it and we're we're coming in strong 2020 we're we're bringing in new people we're gonna start recording um not to prelude what this conversation is gonna be about but we're at home and mm-hmm. we're gonna be at home for a little bit so yeah. yeah i'm just gonna i'm gonna consider this to be tsn season two 2.0 tsn 2.0 bigger better more content that's what we're going for 
Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say we're going to do it like every week, but we'll try to put it out as much as possible. I'm not going to try to... I'm not here to curb people's expectations. I'm expecting five episodes a week. Oh, (laughs) fair enough. It's just going to be me and you on here talking. How was your week? (laughs) They're all going to be four minutes long. Yeah. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, Weiss and I had Montu for dinner tonight, so uh, thank you for tuning in. Good night. (laughs) Um so you know not to not transition so speaking of newer episodes we have we're here introducing uh an episode so dode why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit about it yeah man um so for for those of you listening in the future um the year is 2020 it is the spring of 2020 and there's a pandemic going on we're all quarantined all right and that pandemic is known as covid19 or the coronavirus um, so on March 21st, we got four medical health professionals, so four, uh, sorry, yeah, four doctors and a mental health professional, um, and they spoke about the, the pandemic. They gave us tips about, like, symptoms, what to do if you think that, like, you might be affected, um, how to stay away from getting affected. Um, they just gave you a whole bunch of information on it so, like, you can help yourself and more importantly, help your elder Afghan parents who, you know, are saying Corona, Morona, and they're just praying that it's not going to hit them and they're doing their normal things. So it was a, it was a, a I don't want to say it was a fun conversation. Yeah, I, I saw you catch yourself. Yeah, it was an enlightening conversation and it was one that needed to be had. Um, and I, I think there was a lot of useful information on there. Yeah, and they did. They, I thought they all did a great job of answering, especially especially answering people's questions. I don't know about you, but I feel like yeah. every time I clear my throat, I have a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> right? Of it's like, oh god, it's coming. Um, yeah, yeah, you cough. Oh shit, I got that corona. But um, you know, they so they were answering, but unfortunately, one of the questions I don't think they fully addressed uh, as much as we all would have loved them to. Unfortunately, no. I don't think people are going to see it in the audio, but Dode, why don't you tell us about one of these uh, questions? Yeah, a uh, wonderful lady known as my mother um, decided she was going to watch her first TSN live because, you know, she had nothing else to do either uh, on a Friday night. So she ended up watching the Facebook and she came in and she asked me, how do you spell vape? So I, I told her how to spell it. I was very confused. And then I see there's a comment. What do you say to someone who vapes? Uh, that was fun. <laughs> Wait, I didn't realize. Wait, I didn't know that part of the story. I didn't realize that she, that you were foreshadowed with what was going to happen. Well, I wasn't. I didn't know what was going on. She was smart. She didn't come in with her phone in her hand. She just came in. She's like, hey, how do you spell vape? And I was like, V-A-P-E. I thought she was going to, like, Google it or something, right? And I'm like, all right, whatever, man. She's going to Google it and, like, come Were you vaping at the time she was doing that? No, man. I had, like, I was sitting there on the computer, like, watching it and then on my phone trying to, like, type out all the questions and stuff to send to the group chat to yes, make sure that working. these people <laughs> yeah i was working she came and she's like but Shame, how do you spell vape and i'm like v-a-p-e like what the hell you need like leave me alone <laughs> like i'm working and then i see the comment and i'm like oh you gotta be kidding <laughs> oh man and just just so that people know did anyone answer that question <laughs> yeah some jackass named weiss hamid answered it and he was like hey uh hola. i think uh people that vape need to quit <laughs> Let me tell you, those two comments, hers and my response to it, I think were the most liked uh, portions of that thing, too. It's terrible. Terrible, man. Everyone over here, like, just getting big off of making fun of me. I see how it is. 
but um but you know you and i are joking and making light but um you know we do want to get to the uh get to the topic just because a lot of people are probably still curious people who didn't have the opportunity to listen yeah so um we hope you enjoy it and expect more content coming out soon and we're live uh Salam, everybody. My name is Reza. Uh, you have probably seen me before working with TSN. Um, it's great to be back here. We are also working with the Afghan American Community Organization, and this is um, the first AACO TSN collaboration. And we're here to talk about specifically uh, something that is on the lips of everybody right now, not just the Afghan American community, but uh, everybody across the U.S. and across the world. That's coronavirus, or more specifically, COVID-19. As I'm sure many of you are well aware, uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 has uh, been affecting us in so many ways that we didn't expect. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's also a lot of misinformation. And so we have some healthcare professionals here that um, from the Afghan American community that are hopefully going to be able to ease some of your fears and help answer some of your questions, especially some of the bigger questions that um, have been going around social media. Uh, and so um, I want them to introduce themselves. Um, we'll start with uh, Lita Rashid. We can hear her. Yeah, we can hear okay. her now. Okay. Yeah. As long as you guys can hear me. Yeah. Uh, hi guys, I'm uh, Dr. Lita Rashid. I'm a, a practicing hospitalist here in the Ca- Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I also have a background in public health and I work with various health organizations and tech startups uh, doing public health advising. Uh, and I'm excited to be here. I think uh, it's important for us as a community to really understand how this disease may impact us as a whole and how uh, and where we stand relative to the picture with the rest of the communities that we engage with. So I'm excited to begin this conversation. Hey, Salam, everybody. Happy Nowruz. Uh, congratulations to all who uh, are in the medical field and match today. My name's Sood. I'm a pulmonary and critical care uh, fellow in Cleveland. Uh, I work at an ICU where, you know, if you have COVID and it gets really bad, you come to the ICU. Um, so that's my expertise. I'm happy to be part of this call. Um, I'm in no means an expert on this. So I could only speak to my experiences thus far. And uh, if there's uh, anything uh, that I say incorrectly, please correct me. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm Roz or Rosalind. Um, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. Um, and I'll kind of be addressing the mental health aspects of a pandemic um, for this discussion. And um, I'm excited to be here. Salam everyone and Naruz Mubarak and happy match day to all the uh, medical students out there and echoing what everybody else said. Uh, really excited to be part of this panel and help address this issue in our community. And my name is Arash Ramin. I'm based out of the Bronx, New York, and I'm an emergency medicine physician uh, currently working in two hospitals here. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Uh, obviously, there's a wealth of knowledge within our community, and we want to put it to good use here. And also, thank you for reminding me, uh, Nauruz Mubarak. It is, it is Nauruz. It's hard to think about Nauruz right now, but it, it is supposed to be a holiday. Um, so let's start off with like the most basic, basic of foundational knowledge. What is COVID-19 um, and where did it start? How does it spread? Um, so I can speak a little bit about that. Uh, so COVID-19 or uh, 
SARS-CoV-2 as the actual name of the virus. It's yeah. a virus that uh, we think purportedly started in the Wuhan province in the wet markets in China. Uh, it's actually part of a family of coronaviruses. So this is not the first coronavirus. Um, SARS, for example, if you guys remember, uh, is also a coronavirus. Uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, is also a coronavirus. So this is not the first time humans have um, uh, been um, come in con have come in contact with coronavirus. Uh, but this, um, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about how this is different from some of the other epidemics and pandemics that we've had um, in the world. Uh, particularly, it's an RNA virus, if, if anyone cares to know. Uh, it actually, um, uh, at this point, transmission is between person to person, but it is considered a zoonotic disease. And what that means is it's a, the in, initial host, the primary host was an animal, uh, and the virus ultimately mutated and uh, uh, was able to infect human beings, uh, which other viruses, again, have been able to do in the past. Um, so um, it's uh, particularly at this point still a, uh, contact disease, which means that you can only get it through respiratory droplets. Uh, and in particular, it actually has to get into your uh, uh, respiratory pathway that includes, you know, in your nose or in your mouth in order for it to be infective. So on skin, on other surfaces, it actually can't uh, cause any problems because the affinity is for the respiratory tract and the lungs. And that's why uh, we're seeing a lot of the complications of it uh, be in the uh, respiratory pathway, okay? Uh, having said that though, the virus itself, and again, you know, takes some of what I say also with a grain of salt in terms of the epidemiology and, and uh, how the, um, virus actually acts because the data on it is still really parse and still evolving. But what we do know so far is that the virus can last in the air uh, for about two to three hours. And some of that depends on um, factors in the air, such as humidity and heat. And the WHO actually just put out a report this past Tuesday saying that they would like to do more testing, but at this point, they may start to consider it as an airborne disease as well because it lasts in the air. Uh, the primary mode of contact, though, again, is uh, droplet. So, it, you know, you, you have to breathe in those droplets. Someone, you know, you have to actually get those uh, respiratory particles, you know, sorry, the viral particles in your mouth. You know, someone coughing very close to you, for example, uh, exchanging of saliva, things like that can all cause it to... Uh, to infect you. So, uh, so I'll stop there since I think we'll probably have a few more questions related. But no, that's sort I, of I think that's super important. And uh, just to summarize for folks, um, respiratory droplets, it loves the respiratory tract. So nostrils, your, the inside of your mouth, and that's kind of where it sits and it lives. Um, but it also has been shown to live in the air for a couple of hours um, and sort of just hang out there. Um, and we all know, uh, thanks to Dr. Rashid, that it came about most likely from transfer from animals to humans uh, from China and specifically the Wuhan province. Um, now, once somebody gets it though, Arash, can you tell us what are some of the symptoms that they're most likely to experience that would make you as an emergency doctor um, really want them to like sort of call the hospital and, and get a testing kit? So, the most common symptoms for this virus right now is fever, shortness of breath, and coughing. Um, 
But however, we are seeing mild symptoms of headache, body aches, fatigue, and diarrhea as well. Uh, but if the you're having shortness of breath and high fevers that are continuous and uh, coughing, those would be symptoms to be really concerned about. Uh, because it's a virus, it acts like other viruses and can mimic similar symptoms to like the flu or the common cold. So it's really important for people to know how to differentiate it from other viruses. Um, and so that's why we're using shortness of breath and cough right now to help, really help us differentiate it from the other viruses. Okay. Um, does the cough have to be productive? Like, do they have to be producing something from the cough or should they call if they have a dry cough and shortness of breath? So it's mostly a dry cough, but I think about 30% of the patients right now have a wet cough. So if you have a wet cough, it doesn't mean you don't have it, but dry cough is more common. Okay. All right, so dry cough is more common, shortness of breath, and fever. When people sometimes take their fever, they sometimes call like the emergency department or the urgent care saying, hey, my temperature is 100, should I come in? What is, what is the temperature that you think, oh, okay, I got to call the doctor now? So we consider anything 100.4 and higher a fever okay. um, in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. um, and viruses typically go with like a low-grade fever, so anywhere between that 100.4, 101. But we have been seeing some higher fevers up to like 102 with this virus. Um, but a low-grade temperature is sometimes the beginning of a virus, so something around like 99 and 100. Um, I would like monitor your temperature to see if it goes up and if it does then uh, be a little more concerned. Okay, so everybody should go out and buy a thermometer and monitor their, their temperature and if it gets to 100, 100.4 and you have shortness of breath and a dry cough, call your doctor. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Um, Roz, I wanted to turn to you for a sec. This is all really scary. And um, some of the things that we've seen on TV uh, with like toilet paper being gone, hand sanitizer being gone, people bum rushing uh, the grocery stores. Um, how do we know when our reactions to stress or other people's reactions to stress become excessive and um, not really good for us? Uh, and what can we do to help that? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing would be that, you know, everyone reacts differently to stress or crises or traumatic events. Um, and I mean, the nature of, of those things, I mean, they obviously they all evoke um, anxiety, fear, uncertainty, um, stress. Um, but it's usually when um, those things become excessive, um, where, for example, um, uh, everything is either like black and white, we start like catastrophizing everything. Fear becomes so overwhelming that, for example, um, we go out and uh, buy all the toilet paper to store, all the hand sanitizer. Um, and so, I mean, that's when usually, um, I, mean, I think, I think, unfortunately, panic is contagious. You know, anxiety is very contagious. Um, and so when we see people in our own, you know, social community or in our family and we hear, you know, I mean, we have, my, for example, my family, we have a we have a group text message mm -hmm. and I can see yeah. when, you know, one person sends, especially if it's like one of our, you know, my, my uncle or like an elder and they, they send a message and, you know, everyone listens and, um, and, it, and if, it, you know, if it's, if it's fear-based or if it's a little bit, um, um, anxiety provoking that it can, I mean, literally you can see the whole group, like your alarm bells go off and everyone's like, Oh my God, we have to go do something, you know? Um, so I think that um, when anxiety becomes panic, I think that's definitely a sign. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'd also say that 
Um, anything that starts interfering with your daily routine and your functioning, um, if you're, you know, have trouble sleeping, um, if you feel depression for, you know, more than a couple days, for example, if you're crying frequently, um, if you have, you know, fear of, you know, going to crap, not, not, sorry, not crowds, going to like, the, you know, uh, public spaces, like going to the grocery store, yeah. um, severe emotional stress, feelings of depression, anxiety, anything that really causes you significant distress for um, two to four weeks. Um, that's something to be really concerned about. Um, now, Sue, uh, I'm going to lob this question to you. This is a question from the audience. Uh, Tura Arsala asked this question. What advice would you have for folks who have long-standing health issues who are afraid of the future? And what do you think they should do in terms of um, managing any symptoms that might come up uh, or when they come to you in the ICU? Hopefully they don't get there. So, um, you know, the, the, the issue of chronic disease is a complicated one in the U.S. because um, primary care is something that we don't have a good primary care system in the U.S. Uh, due to access, due to lack of primary care doctors, um, due to this whole, um, there is a large culture that doesn't believe in primary care and that if I feel good, why do I need to go to the doctor? Uh-huh. Um, so what I could say is that, you know, uh, not only with COVID, with, with anything, with just getting your, your, your normal cold, um, with getting a urinary tract infection, um, it just takes one little stressful event to um, cause this downward stream of um, causing acute problems on top of the chronic conditions that you do have. So your body's reserve and ability to recover from that acute illness um, is uh, is hampered. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's coronavirus or another type of virus, unfortunately, um, what this highlights is that if you do have a chronic illness, you know, be strictly compliant with your medications. Um, go to your doctor when you're supposed to go to your doctor. Um, you know, watch what you eat. You know, if you have diabetes, make sure you're very strict with your carbs. Make sure you're, you know, you're taking your insulin, you're checking your sugars three times a day. Make sure your sugars are in that normal range. And if they're not, call your doctor. If you have high blood pressure, make sure, you know, you're, you know, stay away from, you know, foods with high sodium in it. Um, Exercise more. Make sure you take your blood pressure medication more. Again, meditate. You know, do things that, you know, avoid stress, which is, you know, having the help of a therapist uh, helps as well. So if you have chronic diseases, you know, just be very strict about taking your medicines, following up with your doctors and, you know, starting to lead that um, healthy life. And the, the other thing, too, and this speaks to the Afghan culture, um, when you have chronic diseases, um, you know, in Afghan cultures, we're, we're very giving people. When we go out to eat, you know, we... You know, you're not even done with the, your plate, and you know they um, they you know, share the food all the time. Yeah, yeah. And stuff on yeah. The food. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be afraid to say, "Hey, listen, this is bad for my health." You know, I don't need that second plate of food. Things like that. You know, that you need to um, be very diligent about. So, adding in some primary care just at the end. Yeah. I like it. No, I like it. That's awesome. Um, I want to get to uh, one of the questions that I think will help people understand the severity of this pandemic. And um, I, I see that, uh, Lita, you've put in some notes, uh, and I'm hoping you can go over those. But, like, how serious is this coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19? 
Yeah, no, uh, it's a great question. And I think, um, let me preface the answer by saying again, we don't know a lot, right? So one of the ways you can understand um, how serious an illness is, is by using something that we call a case fatality rate in public health. Uh, and that essentially means, you know, how many people uh, died uh, who actually had the disease, right? So your numerator is who, who unfortunately passed away and your denominator is how many people got the disease. And unfortunately, what's happened, is, as I'm sure all of you have been following, is we are not testing very often in this country. We are not testing to the level that, say, South Korea had been testing, that China or even Italy has been testing, Taiwan, for example. So we actually don't know our denominator. We don't know how many people actually have the disease. Uh, and um, so it's really tough right now for epidemiologists to be able to say, you know what, here is that case fatality rate for, uh, for uh, COVID-19. What we do know, though, in looking at various mathematical models that have come through other countries that are well ahead of us, two weeks, four, uh, four weeks ahead of us, like China and uh, Italy, for example, is that it's somewhere around 2.3, okay? So 2.3, to give you some reference, is about 20 times higher than the annual influenza the, the annual flu that we get, okay? So it's a, it's a pretty, it's, it's, it's got a high fatality rate. Mm -hmm. With the, in comparison to, for example, other coronaviruses such as MERS and SARS and for example, Ebola, it's actually much less. Mm. So we know that it's not going to be as fatal as Ebola, for example, uh, but we're starting to still see that it's probably going to be more fatal than our annual flu. So what do you so, say so, to so what do you say to people online who are like, well, there's like 3.4 mortality percent mortality rate. That's nothing. That's totally fine. 97% of people survive this. Yeah. So what I usually say to that is, again, referencing that this current statistic for uh, case fatality mm -hmm. is everybody that's been tested. So we don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing I tell people is that, unfortunately, we are seeing a change in distribution in terms of the fatality rate across different demographics. So we're seeing people who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s get it. But what we're really seeing is people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, that fatality rate goes up exponentially. So right now, the, the fatality rate, the predicted fatality rate for somebody who gets this, who's above 70 years old, is around 15 to 20 percent. So that's a huge number, right? And when we think about what the prediction for this virus is, which is, and I don't know any people, if many people have heard this, but the most recent data suggests that about 40% of the country will be infected. Oh. Which, you know, out of that 40%, if you think about, you know, even a 2% mortality rate, God forbid, a 10% mortality rate in the elderly, the numbers can really add up. Yeah. Um, so, so that's sort of the first, you know, piece of this. Uh, the other reason why this is a disease that, that I think worries, uh, a scientist and worries, uh, you know, uh, sort of everybody to the degree that it has is that it's also different from other coronaviruses and has a very long latency period. Hmm. What that means is from the time that you actually get the virus, get infected, and the time you actually show symptoms, that can be anywhere from three to 14 days. And that 14 days, 
yeah, is a very long time. So what that means essentially is that you can be completely asymptomatic, but transmitting the disease to everybody around mm. you. Mm -hmm. And right now, what we know is that for every one person that gets infected, they are infecting about 2.2 other people. Mm -hmm. So that's really the premise. If, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the social distancing and sort of the lockdowns that are going on. For example, in California, we have a statewide uh, lockdown right now. That's really the premise for this social isolation, mm -hmm. that we need to start separating people who may have the virus, not necessarily symptomatic, but who may actually have the virus and be asymptomatic from people who don't have the virus so that we slow the spread of it. Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've been hearing that social distancing is super important to do, um, quarantining, isolation. Um, uh, Arash, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to add, like, mm -hmm. I, I've been reading a couple articles and uh, a lot of people are probably looking at numbers right now and seeing, like, based on the numbers, how bad the situation is. And uh, something I didn't think about myself is that when you look at the number, like the numbers that are given per day are when the test results. And it takes, depending on the institution, anywhere from a day to five days. So if a person gets tested today, they're actually, their results come in five days. They're, they're tallied for the, the day that the results come in the maps. So while if a person when uh, like leader was talking about, about latency like if you go from day zero from the day this person was infected they haven't they don't might not have symptoms until like day five and then that's when they go get tested and they on day 10 we get the results and between that time from when they got it and they got the results 10 days pass by they might have already transmitted it to so many other people and we didn't know and our numbers are not very accurate and the new projections in the paper show that um, in our country, we are probably at 1 million infected um, based on the data that we have. And because a lot of people are just walking around and they're not symptomatic. Yeah. And that's, that's, that sounds like the dangerous part. And Raz, just going back to when you were talking about people panicking, um, what are some of the common reactions to something like this and and more more so more importantly i think what are some of the common reactions to the ways in which we try to contain contain uh something like this i mean social isolation is not easy for people mm -hmm. in the afghan american community i don't think not from what i've seen at least yeah i actually was reading an article today it was um it was in the lancet and it was a review of the psychological impact of quarantine um and they reviewed um uh studies from i think it was sars and e Ola, um, and um, H1N1. And they found that um, for patients and as well as healthcare professionals um, who were uh, quarantined, that they showed um, negative like psychological effects like post-traumatic stress, symptoms, confusion, anger, um, and that the longer the quarantine, the worse off usually people are. And we're talking about four to five years after you know the pandemic is done, that people were still showing um, signs of post-traumatic stress. Um, so you know, there's a lot of boredom, um, uh, there's also inadequate supplies like grocery stores or medical, um, inadequate information or misinformation or too much information. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also, I think there's also a stigma attached to it as well, which is one of the things the article talked about was, you know, that, you know, people go into quarantine and, and, and of course, you, know, you guys can answer this, but I mean, you know, when is it 
we're done with our quarantine. We're okay. We're feeling better. And people were still, we're stigmatized for it. People don't want to be around us afterwards. So there's even mm. kind of a lag after you get out of quarantine, there's still a period of like adjustments, um, for yourself as well as people around you, because I think, you know, people are still scared. Like, you know, is it really gone? Can I still get it? Um, so that's definitely, um, you know, huge fear. Um, but I think that, um, I don't know, I don't know anyone, thank God yet, but I know that eventually I will, um, in terms of quarantine, but I just, I think, you know, social, you know, we have social media and technology for a reason. I think it's one of the best things that we can do. And I think we have to get creative in ways of doing this. My, um, my, uh, cousin's wife had a birthday the other day. She's in Nebraska and we got like a whole bunch of us together. We did a virtual happy birthday, oh, nice. toast, you know, I mean, we have to get creative about these. I feel uncomfortable doing those kinds of things, <sighs> but I know I'm going to have to get comfortable. So I think it's important. Um, to do that. And I, especially if you know someone who's, who's quarantined, I think it's so important to reach out to them, um, you know, offer to buy them groceries and leave it at their door. You know, um, those things are really, really important uh, because I, you know, I think that quarantine uh, from what I've read is the worst um, and the isolation is the worst part of this psychologically speaking. I can imagine. I can imagine, but it's so important that we practice right. that social distancing and that kind of isolation. Um, we're, okay. we're getting uh, a ton of questions. Uh, so uh, Sood, uh, I'm going to start off uh, with you because you have something to add. So actually, um, one part of the quarantine, and I actually want to um, bounce this back to Rosalind, um, that from the ICU perspective, is that we are, um, just throughout the hospital, we are limiting who can come to the hospital. And from the ICU standpoint, the other psychological effect that this virus is having is one of the collateral effects that it has in that we can't let patients into the ICU. So more patients that don't have coronavirus are passing away as well. And when we're having these conversations, like, look, we've done everything we can, you know, your dad or your brother, or your husband or wife is passing away. Um, you know, you can't come in uh, when we're withdrawing care. That's also having a significant psychological effect. Um, and actually I wanna uh, see if you could talk about that as well, Rosalind. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's part of the uncertainty and, you know, the fear of the unknown and I, and the lack of resources for a lot of people. Um, you know, it's kind of crazy living in America, but right now it seems like we're coming, we're, we're tackling this from a place of scarcity, which I think is just wild. Um, but, uh, um, but I, I think that, um, and I think this is, and also just, I mean, as someone, I, I pay attention to the news a lot. And so I think I'm pretty well informed. However, I'm still a little confused, you know, about, you know, what, you know, if, I, if I'm showing symptoms um, and I'm not an at-risk, you know, person, do I just write it out? Like, you know, like, what do I, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. And I think that's one thing that I think that all individuals and even as, as a family to do it, I think it's really important to have like a plan and consult your healthcare provider, you know, your physician um, and get them to help you. So you have this plan so that when something does happen, um, that, that you're ready and that you don't have to, you know, be, fr I mean, everyone, you're gonna be frantic anyway. It's going to be, you know, a horrible experience. So I think it's important to have that because I mean, preparation um, is the one thing that does reduce anxiety. If you have that, you know, um, prepared and you, have, and you understand step by step what to do, um, that will definitely help in terms of showing up at a hospital when knowing not to do that, for example. Awesome. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or not. I'm sure. Um, so you brought up something that I think um, is super important. Somebody asked this question. Um, Nazia Fazli asked this question. What if you have two or more of the symptoms, but don't fall into a high-risk category? No shortness of breath, not over 50, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, should you still get tested, or should you just write it out in isolation? So I think the answer to that, uh, again, I'm with you, Rosalind. I'm just you know, <laughs> floored by, you know, by our uh, lack of readiness for this as a, as a country, as the United States. But to, to answer the question, um, I think it's really going to almost depend on where you are in the country. Um, I, someone mm. um, said this the other day on, on one of the forums that I'm on, and I think it's a really important point to remember, is that the United States as a whole is not going to be one, you know, uh, one big homogenous COVID example, right? Because right now, as you know, we have clusters happening, right? New York is kind of feeling the burn. Um, California has a tremendous amount of cases. There's really only about 10 different like areas in the country right now that the majority of the clusters are coming from. So, so what does that mean, right? What that ultimately means is um, your, the availability of testing is probably going to be a little dynamic. It's probably going to change over the next few weeks. But as of right now, where, where we stand, and I'm sure the other physicians uh, on the panel can talk about this as well, uh, where we stand within our health system, if you just show up to the hospital and you have one of those two symptoms, the emergency physician is probably not going to test you because we just don't have enough testing kits. And they will probably tell you what the majority of sort of the media is telling you is that if you're not having uh, severe symptoms, if you're not, you know, significantly short of breath or having chest pains or, you know, you're able, you're breathing fine, but you have these other symptoms, you should actually just self-quarantine. You should stay at home. And by self-quarantine, you actually should self-quarantine from the people in your own home too. So I've had examples of patients, for example, quarantining one room for their, you know, <laughs> for that person. Uh, no one's coming in and going out of that room. Um, and that's how they're doing it to prevent, you know, if they have it, because again, at this point, you're not able to get testing. There are some communities where it is widely available. So uh, I think a, a point was made earlier, call your, call your physician, call your primary care physician, don't just show up at the door. And I can't stress that point enough. Uh, because, you know, one of the things I'm seeing a lot on, and again, the physician forums, is that we are getting bombarded by patients who are showing up who are not only putting themselves now back at risk, but are putting sort of other people at risk. So the best thing to do is actually just call your primary care provider, call the Department of Public Health, and they, you know, we've, we've are, we're all working through algorithms right now that says, you know, here's the patient that really needs to come in and get tested, and here are the patients that don't. If you have any questions about it, that's what I would do. Um, so in New York, actually, it is a big problem because our numbers are really high and our um, swabs are limited. And I believe the swabs are limited countrywide. So we are reserving it for the people that are sicker or higher risk. Um, so I know that as an emergency medicine physician, when people are coming in, we're actually screening them and we're telling them you might have it, but this is not the place to get tested. Mm -hmm. This is a number that you can call. This is, uh, we give them the hotline number and we tell them to go home, quarantine themselves, call, and then they get an appointment. Um, so if you have symptoms and they're mild, I uh, recommend that you call your primary care doctor. You can try urgent care or there in New York, we have testing centers now. I know a lot of states across the country are opening testing centers. You can call and see if you can do one of the drive-throughs. Uh, the only time I really recommend people go to the emergency department is if you actually feel sick where you're not able to hold anything down, um, you're, you're not eating anything, drinking anything, 
um, your fevers are really high and you feel short of breath, like the shortness of breath is a really important one where you might need um, oxygen supplementation and the only way to get that is at the hospital. Um, you know, and just to echo off their points, um, every state is different with how they test. Um, I was speaking to a friend in uh, Chicago. He's an ICU doctor over there. Uh, it still takes them five days uh, to get the test, whereas here in Ohio, it's about eight to 48 hours. Uh, in Dallas, they're not even uh, doing the testing. Um, it's, it's there, but it's not in a large amount. They're just asking travel questions. Um, what I could say is that um, if you um, are, if you have significant chronic illnesses, um, if you, even if you're younger and uh, you're on any kind of immunotherapy, um, prednisone, um, Humira, things like that, um, uh, or if you have been in a region or in an area that has had significant uh, amount of the, these cases, uh, come to the hospital. But really the thing to echo is the shortness of breath because uh, the time to, so there's two, there's two issues with the shortness of breath. Um, the progression to um, the severe respiratory illness uh, with this uh, is actually pretty fast. So you come in, you have shortness of breath, uh, you require oxygen. The time from oxygen to actually requiring life support, um, it actually escalates very quickly. Um, the other thing is that normal non-invasive means of actually ventilating patients is actually risky with COVID right now because of the fact that the non-invasive ways of ventilating can actually aerosolize and cause your own respiratory droplets to go out into those rooms. Mm -hmm. So those patients require, require negative pressure rooms to keep that air in, but there's not that many negative pressure rooms as well. For sure. So really, really emphasizing the shortness of breath and coming into the hospital. So, so I just want to quickly summarize things for um, people either just joining us or um, who may have had some trouble um, following along. Um, if you are experiencing shortness of breath, it's not really about showing up to the ED, but it is about calling your PCP, um, as Lita said. And if you are somebody who is not in one of those at-risk populations, self-isolation and quarantine is going to actually really help you and really help the people in your community around you stay uh, safe. Is that a fair sort of like one-liner? Shortness of breath, watch out for that. Call your doctor. Don't just show up to their doorstep. But if you do feel like you aren't um, able to walk up a flight of stairs or you are falling apart or you're vomiting a ton, go to the emergency department. Yeah. I mean, I think we need, uh, to, to, to your point, mm -hmm. uh, we need to emphasize that, that particular portion. If, if you're having shortness of breath, you should be going to the hospital. Okay. And I think my, colleague, my physician colleagues would agree with that. You know, we're, I think what uh, what you were saying earlier, Arashan, was just that, you know, if you're having like low grade fevers, you know, you just don't feel well. All of us have had, you know, viruses, right? All of us, <laughs> some of us had the flu, some of us had like sort of rhinovirus, all these other viruses. You know, you just don't feel good. You feel a little sickly, but you're eating, you're drinking, you're, you know, you're going to the bathroom fine. You, don't, you certainly don't, you know, aren't, aren't short of breath as you're speaking sentences. Those are the people that I think need to self-quarantine and call and, you know, go through those other first few channels before showing up to the emergency department. But if you're short of breath, I think we can all agree those people should be going to, to the hospital. 
Awesome. Um, we're, we're getting a ton of questions, as I'm sure you all expected us to get a ton of questions. And I want to thank everybody who's watching for sending us their questions. Because we're getting so many, we may not get to yours. And I apologize profusely for that. We will do our best to get to them uh, in the Facebook comments if we don't get to them in the call right now. Um, but I, I want to dive into some of them right now. Um, there's one from way back towards the beginning of our uh, conversation, um, Razia Khoromi asks, Does the sim do the symptoms start in steps or, are they or do they present themselves all at the same time? Um, and it sounds like it's variable from what y'all are saying, but I want to I push it to you guys. I'll, I'll, just right, I'll take this. So um, it, it can be variable. Everybody's body reacts differently. So there's no um, way to say that you'll first feel a fever, then you'll get a cough and feel a shorter breath. For some people, it might all come at once. For other people, it might come in slowly and they might not get some of the symptoms. So there, there's no way to really answer that question. Um, it, it, everyone's symptoms will vary. And okay. it, it depends on many factors such as your age, your comorbidities, and how your body reacts. Okay, so it's variable and it's, it's hard to predict whether they'll come on all at once or stepwise. Um, someone else asked, uh, and I'm not going to say their name because they gave us um, a list of their symptoms, um, but they were saying that based on all of their symptoms, they have been to um, an emergency department twice this week, but they still haven't been tested. Uh, how do um, you all in the hospital determine who gets tested? Is it just based off of the shortness of breath or are there other things that are also involved that you want people to know that like, okay, this is going into my algorithm and this is why you're not going to get a test? Yeah, we have a protocol. I, I'll, mm. I'll let everybody else sort of answer. So Okay. Agree. We have a protocol and our protocol actually changes every day. So if you don't fall within the algorithm, then we redirect. Okay. And I, and I think that's really important to note for people who are um, not in the medical field and who are watching this, these protocols that um, your doctors are using in the hospital, whether you're in the urgent care or the emergency department or your PCP's office, um, they're changing every day. And uh, they're changing based off of the new science and the new facts that we're getting every day. Um, and so it's the physicians and the other healthcare providers that are seeing you are changing up their game and pulling audibles, so to speak, uh, really quickly and on the fly. And I, I think they all understand why it can be frustrating. Um, someone else asked... Um, they said that they have COPD, um, and I'm also not going to say the name because they, they identified a chronic illness that they have. Um, I have COPD. What precautionary action should I take just in case if I get this virus, and what should I do to prevent not getting this virus? Yeah. And, and, so, I, think, and I, I think we answered that last part a little bit with, with the social distancing and the quarantining, um, but... I, this is this question, I think, is where I want you guys to hopefully address some of the misconceptions around things like face masks and hand sanitizer, um, because those things are flying off the shelves and they're on the news everywhere. Are those some of the um, uh, yeah. precautions that will help people? Like, is wearing a face mask helpful? Yeah. So I think the uh, people have been saying it, and hopefully it's like, you know, plastered in everybody's mind, right, that the number one 
preventive measure is hand washing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, number one, I mean, your hands should be dry. I've been telling people your hands should be dry right now. Every, mm -hmm. every person in this country, their hands should be dry because that's how much they should be washing their hands. Uh, sanitizers work okay. They have to be at least 60% alcohol in order to be effective. But hand washing is still, I mean, gold. Okay, so all these, you know, people going around, you know, hoarding hand sanitizer, you know, soap is much better. You know, the virus actually has a very thick, what's called a very thick lipid layer. And so soap works better in actually breaking, uh, you know, it's a fat layer around the virus. And soap works much better at breaking that fat layer apart and keeping the virus from continuing to replicate. So that's why you want to use soap because, the, the you know, the science actually says soap works a lot better. Um, Face masks, you know, I'll let you guys sort of talk about that too. I think there is still, you know, there isn't hard and fast rules about who should be wearing face masks. I think we all agree collectively that if you're exposed regularly to somebody, so health work workers, EMS people, people who work in nursing homes, you know, people who work in dialysis centers, all those people should be wearing face masks. But, you know, should you as an individual who's out and about town be wearing face masks? I think, you know, you, you have to sort of make that decision for yourself. There is some, ironically, there's some epidemiological data that says when people wear face masks, they actually touch their face more because it's around the nose, it's around the, you know, they're constantly moving it, adjusting it, wanting to talk. And if that is you, then no, don't wear face masks. <laughs> but I think the average healthy person doesn't necessarily need to wear one for any reason. Just maintaining that distance of six feet, washing your hands regularly, not touching your face too much, if we do that, if if 90% of the country does that, we will do what everybody's been talking about recently, right? Flatten the curve. We will flatten the curve. It, okay. um, China has shown that they did it. South Korea has shown that they did it. Uh, uh, Taiwan has shown that they did it. If you get people, you know, unfortunately in this country, you know, we're, 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 we can't do those sort of draconian measures. You know, we're, we're a democracy, so we can't force everybody, uh, you know, we can't quarantine large cities, you know, but that, that is what essentially was done in China and that's how they flattened that curve. So, so it's a sort of a long-winded answer, but that's, that's, my, my, my uh, medical opinion. No, you gave, you gave clear-cut advice. Wash your damn hands. Hand sanitizer <laughs> needs to be 60% alcohol. And if you are the kind of person who touches your face a ton, then maybe don't wear a face mask. If you're a healthy person, you're walking about town, it's not necessarily uh, crucial that you wear a face mask. But you work in a dialysis center, you work in a senior home, you work in the healthcare field, wear a face mask. Perfect. Sud, I think you wanted to say something. So uh, just to talk about, uh, touch base about this, the COPD. And can you um, mention like what COPD is just like briefly, super briefly? So, so COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. There's three different classes, but the essential uh, component of COPD is that your ability to actually um, exhale the air that you breathe in uh, is uh, diminished due to the fact that there's actually changes in your lungs that prevent it from um, bouncing back to normal is, I guess, uh, the simple way of, of putting it. Um, uh, if, if so, the, the one thing about COPD is is there's different severities to COPD. So the more the severe your COPD, the higher risk you are at not only with COVID, with anything, just even dust dust particles around your house that you, you may be allergic to could set you set you over. Um, so the important things for uh, the patient, uh, the the person who has COPD, is uh, if you're smoking, please stop smoking. Um, the other thing is um, use your actual MDIs, uh, the, um, the inhaler itself, instead of the nebulizer machine that you have. And if you feel like you're actually, and the way to use it is you actually, you put your mouth over it, you take a big deep breath over like a 10 second period, 
and you actually hold your breath for a couple of seconds, hold it in your mouth, and then let go. It's not a quick like, and that's it. It's more you hold it in and then you let it out. So that's a proper technique is is important. Uh, the nebulizer machine could spread the virus around if you have it, so I wouldn't use that because that could um, contain other people. And then really look at your your functionality. So if you're someone who has COPD and is you know and can walk up a flight of stairs, but now you can't walk a up a flight of stairs call your doctor, come to the hospital. I mean, even if you didn't have COVID, if, you ha if you're having these symptoms with your COPD, you, you got to call your doctor and come to the hospital. And if you're having significant wheezing as well. So if you have COPD, meaning you, you have uh, a chronic lung disease, a lung disease that's lasted with you for a long time now, um, and you experience a different sort of ability for yourself, different from the norm, maybe you have low ability to begin with, but it's now lower, come to the doctor. All right. Um, so this is something that I want to throw to Roz because it's about talking to um, older parents. Uh, there are, so Rabia Khan asked, what are some facts you can share for the younger generation to convince their parents and older generation to take social distancing seriously? Um, and I, I kind of want to like broaden that question out. Um, how do we talk to our older parents who are not taking this seriously? Um, how do we make sure that they do? How do we make sure that they understand the severity of this? Yeah, um, so I was actually a little surprised because my, my thought, because I'm basing it on my mother, right? So my thought was everyone's Afghan parents were like super, super um, freaked out about this <laughs> and being um, unusually, you know, careful. Um, so that was my, so when I heard, you know, I got that question, I was, I was, I was surprised. But <laughs> I mean, like, like I said earlier, everyone's, everyone's reaction is very different. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, one of the things, um, you know, I had, my dad's 87, so he's, you know, high, high risk. Mm -hmm. um, and um, luckily, knock on wood, he's very healthy. But um, he wasn't taking it that seriously. Like he wanted to go to the movie theater. <laughs> and he, you know, um, wanted to go to his favorite like seafood restaurant, oh, no. crab and you know, stuff like that. And so and I, I was a little surprised. But I think I think part of it has to do. Uh, and I think this is universal. It's not it's not specific to Afghan culture or anything. I think it's kind of universal that um, people who are considered at risk, um, in these circumstances, I don't think under any other circumstances they'd be considered at risk. Right. So, you know, the first time looking at kind of like, um, being part of that older co cohort and being lumped into that category, I think a lot of times is a little jarring, um, for people. Um, so that's one thing I think that's kind of just a universal factor. Um, and I think that, um, in terms of how, how we how we talk to them and address them, you know, you guys know your your parents better than I do, and I think I think you have to kind of play around with things and see what works. I think yelling and and you know being aggressive about it that's not I, I don't think that's a very effective. In fact, in fact, I think it's a little counter um, productive in terms of um, especially when we have you know our, our stubborn parents, you mm. know, who think they know everything and they've been through so much more than us, um, which is so true. You know, they have more wisdom than us, but um, I think that it's important um, to kind of play around. Like I had to do it with my dad, you know, and for me, uh, um, I have to admit it was using um, um, a little bit of guilt <laughs> um, mm. and also kind of using uh, statistics that are really jarring. So I had heard from someone and I don't even know, don't quote me. I don't know if this is true. The doctors can, can let me know. But I, you know, I told them that um, five out of six um, people who contract um, coronavirus who are over the age of 80 are more than likely to die. So I, I threw that out at my dad and that, you know, shook him up. So that was something. So we really started paying attention to, uh, you know, after that. Mm. Um, 
But I think also another way to, you know, is, is to kind of ask some questions, like, what do you know? Because I think that's really important. Like if we, if we just kind of go after them um, and we don't know what information they're holding in, you know, in their heads to base their decisions on, then we didn't you know they could be have totally wrong information, for example. So that might be the first step. Well, first they had to have the right information. Um, and then we can maybe talk to them about what's going on, what's going on. So I think um, asking them what kind of information they have, where are they getting in their information? Um, and then um, telling them what your worries are. You know, I think that's very important. And these are the, these are the you know, precautions and the steps that, and actions that I'm taking. Um, and tone matters a lot. Um, and I think it's, you know, important that appealing to your parents' love of their children, um, as well as your love for them can be really powerful. Um, I did that with my dad. I was like, listen, I'm not, I'm not ready to lose you. So I need you around for a little bit longer. And I think that's, you know, I think, I think it'd be hard for any parent to to kind of uh, shoot that down. So I think that would be really important, but I think it's also important just to understand, you know, our parents are coming from, from Afghanistan and whatever their experience of trauma um, or war experiences or uh, poverty, whatever it may be, um, that, that helps that's, that helps them. And it's a big part of um, how they're making their decisions in this crisis. So I think it's important to keep an open mind with that and kind of try to understand where they're coming from. And they are doing the best that they can. So try to meet them at their level, but also use a little bit of guilt. But uh, <laughs> try to infuse that all with love. Like you're, you're, you're limiting their actions because you love them. But right. damn it, dad, a lot of people die from this. So stay home. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I love that. I, that. That seems to me to be a pretty clear strategy uh, using a lot of the information that we've gotten here. Um, an interesting question that was posed uh, by uh, Marina uh, Norstani, wouldn't face masks have helped if people who are carriers and they didn't know that they were carriers... Uh, but they had worn face masks and thus would have prevented uh, the spread of the disease. Wouldn't a face mask uh, helped in that situation? Um, and I want to toss this to uh, Arash, but um, Sue, please feel free to jump in. Um, it's a really hard answer to question because, uh, sorry, question to answer, because we're going to run out of face masks every, if everyone starts using face masks. And uh, that's becoming a problem in hospitals across the country. Uh, so it is a respiratory droplet, and that's how it is spread. Uh, but if you practice good social distancing, which would good six feet, then the chances are less risky. Um, and if you think you're low risk, wearing a mask is not necessarily beneficial for you. It's more so beneficial for people that are sick, so they can prevent from spreading, or people that are elderly. Um, and that like it has to still go to work and come back to work. Maybe they can wear it. I wouldn't necessarily give the mask to like the younger people. Um, it's more important for the elders that are at risk or people that are actually have symptoms. Um, I just also wanted to add something real quick regarding uh, family. Um, there, so I know that some of us are having a hard time with convincing our parents about the situation and getting them to get serious about it. But I feel like there's also things that we can do to limit um, the spread of this virus. Um, so I know I feel like a good majority of the Afghan community is practicing um, isolation with their families to the best of their ability. Uh, but uh, you still hear of cases of where people are still having like get-togethers. And we come from a community where, you know, family gatherings are very, 
important and it happens almost on a weekend basis. Um, there is a community out in New York, and I'm not going to say exactly which community, but they haven't been following um, the regulations that are put out by the mayor and the governor, and they continue to do their big family gatherings, and they continue to celebrate their holidays in large numbers. And now they, they have seen a huge as of today um, in their population. So I don't want this to happen to our community um, if we take the right precautions um, and we all stop having our get-togethers. And I know right now, like to Rosalind's point, having like, you know, virtual get-togethers, you know, everyone has like a, a phone now and has a, a laptop. Um, so doing things virtually and also uh, limiting um, visits to uh, elderly people. So I know a lot of people have grandparents. Um, usually children's are like vectors. They, they like carry it and they don't have symptoms or like younger people up to up in their 20s like don't have symptoms. So I know visiting our elders is very important, but at this time it might be more of a risk than um, to go visit them and they might not understand that. Uh, so maybe trying to do a phone call or, or a FaceTime instead of going to them. All right. I'm wondering if I can add one thing to that, because I think those are really great points. Um, and I'm going to make sort of a professional slash personal plea here with regard to face masks, right? So in general, the WHO, CDC do not recommend face masks for the average healthy person, right? But what have we seen in, in this pandemic, right? We've seen a lot of people um, buying en masse the regular face masks, and then what we call the N95 masks, the ones that are fitted to size and more like surgical masks. So certainly the, the average healthy person does not need, need that. But what's happening is that more and more people, you know, just through a little bit of hysteria and fear are actually buying those. The people who actually need them, the, the healthcare workers, the frontline front workers, the ED doctors, the ICU, the intensivists, the hospitalists, all of these guys, the nurses, for example, are not able to get them. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an you know, anecdotal experience. I was in the hospital just a few days back, and I had to make a call myself and my nurses to decide who are we going to use these very limited supply of masks that we have on, right? And and the reason that's a that's a really important is because certainly I care about my health and the health of my nurses, but if I get sick, I'm going to get a lot of other people sick. Meanwhile, there's N95 masks sitting in people's garages, right? <laughs> so so it's a really poor, you know, a, a lot of people have been saying this and we're hearing this a lot from Dr. Fauci and some of the other people at the CDC that we really are in this together, right? If I get sick, that's not good for you. That's not good for who, whoever's in my community, not just whoever's in my household. Um, so, so the best thing we can do is take the measures that prevent spread. And, you know, data shows that just wearing a mask by itself actually doesn't completely stop the spread of the infection. You still have to maintain those uh, hand washing and hygiene measures because these masks, you know, again, you know, are limited in what they can do. You, we want to reserve them for the people that actually get exposure very close to COVID positive patients. And I think, uh, I don't know if it was Arash John or, or uh, Sue, you guys said you had four this week alone, right? You need to be able to get those masks. So so that's my personal plea to everybody not to, not to hoard the masks so that the help frontline workers can really get to them when they need. Okay. So I, I, I work at a hospital. 
post hundred beds. Um, and, and I actually had this issue last night where um, one of the COVID patients I had needed to um, get put on, um, they needed to get intubated in that they needed a tube down their throat and needed to be put on life support. And they did not actually have a PAPR uh, outfit for me in that case. Um, so that actually delayed the time of intubation for this patient and unfortunately might lead to um, a negative effect as far as the um, the delay in delivering adequate oxygenation to this patient. So, I mean, that's just one anecdotal piece of evidence. And, um, you know, before this entire pandemic happened, uh, no one would have even thought that that would be the case. So. Yikes. And, and that's scary. And I think setting aside the differences between surgical masks or N95s and um, whether one is more effective than the other preventing the transmission of this disease, it sounds like uh, bottom line, buying too many of these is taking away from people who need to treat uh, COVID patients or other patients in the hospital. Um, so pull back, uh, rein it in. Um, there, there have been several questions asked by multiple people uh, that are the same. Uh, if you get COVID once and you recover, can you get it again? I don't know if that's um, somebody... Yeah, okay, yeah, great. I can take that, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so um, right now, uh, the, the big answer, the short answer is we don't know. Um, the more specific answer is that there are some cases, there have been a few reported cases, I want to say actually out of Japan, but don't, don't quote me, but there have been some reported cases of people who are uh, reinfected. So uh, so it, that's why I think a lot of people are, are um, uh, predicting that this may be very much like seasonal flu where we will go through, you know, a year to two years of, you know, badness, unfortunately, uh, because again, we've never been uh, exposed to this virus, but then at some point, uh, uh, collectively, there will be some uh, herd immunity, right? We will have, uh, uh, we'll not only have knowledge of it and hopefully a vaccine, but also some natural immunity built and it will become uh, somewhat seasonal, which at that point, that means that you can get it just like, you know, you can get the flu year after year, if, you know, especially if you don't get your vaccine. So get, get your flu vaccines. That's more important than ever right now, too. So. I actually had a quick question of that. So I, I heard about that one case in Japan um, where uh, the person, I guess, reinfected. And, and I was reading the article and it was actually on Twitter. And then someone, a doctor, jumped on Twitter and said that their understanding was that it wasn't that the person, the patient was reinfected, that it was more that it was that it was dormant in the system. I don't know if you can speak to that or not, if, there were, if you know anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's why the, sort of the caveat was we don't know, right? So because okay. they still have what we do know is that just like um, just like it has a long latency period, it also does have actually a long dormancy period. So people have seen it in, for example, saliva in the gastrointestinal tract in the urine long after the patients have been, you know, have have gotten better. So we know it just, you know, it sits around for a while. Uh, you know, so so in this particular few cases, actually, you know, is this a reinfection? Uh, or is this, you know, the person getting, um, you know, just uh, symptomatic again, for example, from a, from a prior infection? I think that is just remains to be seen. I think it remains to be seen. But again, the way other viruses that are similar to this have acted, it, it, it may be that you can get it, you know, multiple times. Hopefully by then, you know, they're saying about 18 months or so a year, we have a vaccine. Right. Yeah. Okay, thank you. 18 months sounds like a long time. 
And um, <laughs> something that <laughs> something that a lot of uh, folks have been bringing up on social media, especially within the Afghan community, is that um, a few countries like China and South Korea have uh, been sort of coming around the bend on uh, COVID response. Um, and it's getting worse in places like Europe and in America. Um, what do you all think is maybe one or two reasons why um, China and South Korea or other East Asian com- uh, countries are coming around on this and why it's getting worse in places like uh, America and Europe? Just to sort of address address some of the the theories that are coming out about it, uh, and um, and why why there's that difference. So we can go to uh, Lida or Sud or Arash or yeah. So so, I think it's it's important to remember um, the trajectory of the virus, right? So when whereas it started in China, kind of made its way across the globe, so. In terms of, you know, why are, you know, some places already doing better, I think there's a few different theories. It's important to keep in mind, however, that uh, we are about two to four weeks behind, for example, Italy, right? So we will see that sort of same sort of uptake. We'll see the sort of the same sort of epidemiological pattern as likely they did if if we continue to, I think, um, do act in the same manner, right? Mm-hmm. So what am I what do I mean by that? I think you know most of the scientists will tell you that the reason, for example, uh, uh, Wuhan, for example, right, is is uh, starting to close down the hospitals, right? The Wuhan province is starting to close down the hospitals that they had built just for uh, coronavirus cases, uh, because Wuhan essentially was quarantine an entire sort of province was shut out from the rest of China and China and China was shut out from coming in right so those are the kind of measures that you know can sometimes actually you know uh, mitigate this kind of spread now can we do that in the United States right and I won't sort of get into the socio-political aspect of a lot of this uh, because that's certainly not my area of expertise but to the degree that we can self-isolate to the degree that we can have some of these uh, lockdown places in order as, as we have, a, a, like I said, just yesterday or the day before here in California, uh, where, you know, I mean, California looks like a ghost town right now, uh, but okay, right? It's okay. And and I think, Roz, you could, you know, your, your work is going to be tremendously important because people have to believe how important this particular measure is. Mm-hmm. So if we want to be like those countries that have already the script on this virus, then this is what we have to do. As a country, we have to come together. As a community, we have to come together and say, sorry, you know, I, I definitely want that kebab tonight, Kala, but I can't, you know, I, I can't go far. You know, I, my, my Kala lives very close by. I'd love to go see her, but no, we're going to, you know, we're going to socially distance. We're going to isolate. We're going to give this virus, you know, a, a run for its money. So, so that's, I think, what we can do. And I think that's the best example from those countries that have really you know, shift the curve here. Yeah, so it sounds like it's more of like a structural reason rather than something to do with the virus itself. It's the structure of those societies um, and some elements were maybe not so great or wouldn't fit in America, but that's what helped them. And we're also on a, a, a delayed trajectory because it came not first here. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, Arash, uh, I think you wanted to add a little bit to it and address some of the other kind of conspiratorial tin hat 
theories that are, are going around? So um, as far as to the point as like the countries around China, why they might not be getting it, we don't actually know that. If you look at Eastern countries, most of them are not as advanced. So the ones that are advanced are the ones that are giving us numbers. And uh, they've actually been doing a pretty good job if you look at like South Korea and Japan. Um, the others just might not have the testing. It might ha have gotten there, but they're also on a late trajectory like the other countries. So you have to look at how advanced every country is when you compare. Um, and then there's also have been some studies recently showing because they've been doing genotyping of the virus and they said that there is two types. So they're saying that it's the S type and the L type. And China has the S type where Europe has mostly the L type and the L type is m more transmissible. So it uh, can infect people faster. Um, and might be more aggressive than the S-type that we've seen in China. Uh, you also have to look at like how people live in these communities and what type of comorbidities they have. If you look at the European countries, um, a lot of them are heavy smokers, so they might not have good lungs. Um, Italy is also the country with the second um, highest elderly population in the world. So their numbers are going to be high as far as mortality compared to like China. Um, and then I just wanted to quickly touch on like emergency preparedness because um, it's really important. Um, so every family and household should have an emergency plan in place for God forbid uh, situations like this, not just pandemics, but natural disasters. And of course we, in the USA, like natural disasters are different depending where you are, where like California might get earthquakes and we get hurricanes. So you just need to be prepared for like your climate and you have to have everything in your household ready. So you don't wait last minute and where everything goes off the shelves and then you're not prepared. It's still a little early. Um, there's a lot of resources out there where you can look up on either like the CDC, um, FEMA, who I'll just look up their emergency um, preparedness guidelines and have something in place for your household. Told. Also get to know your neighbors um, and people in your community. If you know there's other Afghan Americans around you, uh, this is a time to probably get to know them because it might not just be you helping them if you might not be in the need of help and they might be able to help you. So try to build like strong relationships at this time because we don't know where, what the trajectory is in our country. Awesome. I And I, I'm sort of I hate the fact that like we brought up some of those conspiracy theories on the call, but I think that they're important because uh, sometimes if you ignore them or let them live in a corner of your room, they can just grow there and, and become more and more pernicious, more and more insidious and like uh, have a stronger pull on people's minds and anchor them. Um, and so thank you for bringing up those nuances to the data and how it doesn't prove that, that it's all a hoax from China. Um, so I want to wrap up the call um, with a question to, uh, with one question to each of you. Um, and uh, that question is, what can we expect next? And Sud, we haven't heard from you in a little bit, so I want you to start and uh, tell us, what can we expect next? So, you know, with all the predictions, um, you know, there's, in, you know, with more testing that comes out, there's going to be an exponential number of uh, increased cases. And uh, the worry at this point is uh, that there are only two 
2.3 hospital beds per, I think, 1,000 uh, patients in the U.S. There's 931,000 beds, hospital beds in the entire United States. There is 161,000 ventilators available in the entire United States for the potential millions of people that may be affected by this. So what we can expect next is uh, if we get the massive surge like we are expecting is a shortage in the amount of ways of treating these patients. Um, and that's a big fear. Uh, that's a big fear because we don't want to get to that point uh, and deal with something that we healthcare professionals do not fully 100% grasp and understand. And we are doing things on the go as well. Uh, and this is something that requires a lot of manpower. Um, and, it, you know, just the, the 10 or so patients that we admitted this week uh, has required so much from the nursing staff, so props to them as well. Um, but that get, the, there's a lot of collateral damage that's done to patients who don't have COVID, but get neglected as a result of all the resources going towards the patients who have COVID. Um, so, you know, those are the things to expect. At the same time, though, I want to emphasize that um, altruism is something that we need to practice as a community. Um, selflessness, wash your hands, um, and just pay attention to your body. And you know, every every day is a different day, and it's a trying time. And it's be nice to one another. And um, you know, vote Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> nice. Okay. All right. All right. Um, uh, Lida, what can we expect next? Um, so I was going to say, expect it to get worse before it gets better. Mm. Okay. I think collectively we should all be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. Um, expect that someone, you know, will be infected, whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, um, try as much as you can to, uh, uh, support isolation of those individuals who are older than 60, who are immune compromised in any way. And that means, you know, cancers, you know, they're on medications that suppress their immune system. They have heart disease, particularly the trend that's been showing is that patients do far worse if they already have heart disease, stroke, diabetes, other respiratory issues, um, and, um, you know, just any long-standing chronic illness. So support those people in being as isolated and and, and practicing uh, self-isolation as much as possible. So call your, you know, if it's a mom or a grandmother or whoever, call them so that they don't, you know, feel the need and the itch to go outside because uh, they are the most vulnerable right now and the most at risk. Um, and yeah, to, to Sud's point, you know, just be good to each other. Um, if, if you can support you know, I've seen um, some groups going out and doing grocery shopping for uh, elderly in their community. I think that's wonderful. These are definitely the times where I think the best of us and the, uh, the best in us and the worst in us can come out. And I think we can make a choice about, uh, you know, which which face we want to show. And, uh, and Afghans are incredibly hospitable and kind people. So I, I think uh, I know which way we'll land. Um, before I go, though, I do yeah, want to add one yeah. thing. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Please. A bit of criticism about, about our, you know, I've been seeing a lot of dialogue in the media about, you know, Chinese virus, Chinese virus. And, you know, I know um, certainly, you know, just even within my own circle, people have mm -hmm. sort of some 
xenophobic ideas about where this virus came from. Um, it is true that it does come from China. It is true that it, you know, it was passed from uh, animal to humans. But keeping in mind that things like SARS and even Middle Eastern MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, came from camels. So it is, uh, uh, you know, we should take as much caution as possible in trying to, you know, plant this on uh, our Asian community members. I know they're feeling, the, you know, the brunt of the xenophobia at this point in terms of this. Uh, so especially children, you know, I've heard of cases of young, you know, Asian American children being bullied and harassed about this. So, so as much as we can, let's teach each other that this is, you know, this is at this, at this point, it's everybody's problem. So, okay. Awesome. No, thank you so much for bringing that up. It's words have consequences and we, we have to act like that. Um, Arash, what to, what to expect next? I'll uh, just uh, echo what uh, Leader John said. So John said it, uh, same thing. It's just get prepared to, for it to get worse. Um, I also, for, from like a non-medical standpoint, like get used to like, you know, this lifestyle for now. Like prepare mm -hmm. yourself to like live in this type of situation and don't think that it's just going to go away in a month. Um, so make good use of your time. Like, Think about like your finances, think about like how you're going to care for your family, your children, uh, what you can do for everyone um, until this virus like, like goes away and we go back into a normal way of life. Awesome. Thank you. It, it, then I think that that's, so you're hinting at the reality of the situation. Um, and then Roz, uh, you're the one here I think who would have the most experience uh, in comforting folks and giving them words to get them through situations like this. Um, maybe not exactly like this, but tough situations. Um, can you give us some words that maybe we can end this on a high note? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, a lot of pressure. I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> um, um, so I think, I think one of the things that's really important, I mean, we need to keep things in perspective, right? And I know that there's a lot of fear and anxiety. And in some ways, that anxiety and the fear that we do feel can be protective, right? It's a protective. It's a survival mechanism. It helps us to get through things. It's, it's a good thing. Um, but, you know, a virus can, you know, invade our bodies, but we decide whether it invades our minds, right? And I think that's really important. This is an opportunity where... Um, we can embrace kind of the ordinary and get back to the basics and uh, pay attention and take care of, you know, of our bodies and our minds and our spirits and, and other people around us um, and getting out of our head. Um, so I think, you know, I think someone mentioned earlier, you know, relaxation and meditation exercises and deep breathing and mindfulness is so mindfulness is probably, I would say, one of the most important things um, that we can do because anxiety um, in and of itself, is a, it's a very cognitive kind of thing. You know, it starts in our heads and it starts with our thinking. So staying mindful of um, how we're feeling and, you know, what we're doing in the moment and how we can take, you know, make the best um, use of our time, I think is really important. Um, and I think just maintaining a sense of hope. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I always say, um, and I actually practice, I, I encourage my mom to do the same, is, you know, take... Um, at the end of the night, at the end of the day, you know, to wrap things up and to kind of go to bed positive, um, do, you know, like three things that you're grateful for today, three things and get like nitty gritty about it. You know, not like so grateful I'm alive and I don't have COVID, you know, <laughs> um, we kind of getting, you know, I'm so grateful, um, that that's, you know, 
speak to, you know, my aunt in Germany or something, whatever it may be. Um, I think it's really important just to kind of get back to the basics because we get so, in our normal routine, we're not in this um, crisis. I think that we tend to um, take things for granted. And I think that this is, a, you know, it's an opportunity um, to embrace kind of the, the basics in the ordinary. And, and uh, how, have you heard of any good techniques for exercising? Because all the gyms are closed. Um, so I know that um, YouTube is, has hey. a whole bunch of things. Um, I know um, some, if you check on some of your local yoga studios, they'll, they'll do like virtual yoga classes, for example. I know nice. that, that there's a place near me that does that. Um, and I actually, I found one, I found one for my, you know, kind of like a senior video for my mom that she can do. So, <laughs> so I've been looking around and there's also apps. Um, there's great apps. Um, Calm is probably one of the best apps there is. They have a whole bunch of different things you can do there. It's free. Um, so I would definitely recommend Calm. Perfect. Okay, so AppCom, uh, go to YouTube for exercise videos, contact local yoga studios, expect things to get worse before they get better, distance yourself socially, get used to this as a new normal. If you have chronic illnesses, things like diabetes, COPD, heart disease, uh, monitor your symptoms. Watch out for a temperature of 100.4 or higher. Shortness of breath is the most important symptom. And make sure to be in contact with either your local urgent care, your PCP, which is your family doctor, the kind of doctor that you see regularly, um, before you head to the emergency department and overload them. And please, please, please wash your hands. Be uh, wary of using face masks because folks here on this call need those face masks to do their job. Um, so, uh, my name is Reza. This is a collaboration between the Afghan American Community Organization. Thank you so much at ACO um, for partnering with us to get the word out about this conversation. I want to thank uh, I want to thank the people behind the scenes of all of this: um, Ghazal, Noura, Ali, Weiss. Uh, Diz, Hena, this is the team behind TSN. Um, they are putting out content and helping us put on this production all the time. Um, go check us out on our Instagram. If you're bored and at home and need something to do, listen to our podcast. Just search Some of Our Network. Go onto YouTube, search Some of Our Network for any of our other conversations. We talk about a whole range of stuff affecting the Afghan American diaspora. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you to the panel for being here. Um, and good night. Stay safe. Isolate yourselves. <laughs>